hard-hitting medical truth, cutting through conflict and confusion to the understanding you're searching for. Join Dr. Peter McCullough, world-renowned medical expert and practicing physician for this edition of the McCullough Report. Your life may depend on it. Let's get real, let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. These are the times that try men's souls. Over the course of our nation's history, the people of America have rallied bravely whenever their rights of men have been threatened. Today, a new crisis has arisen. The massively retarded NPC Armageddon, or the MRNA, has been pushed as a burdensome vax on the population under the guise of coof transmission reduction. Citizens, hear me out. This could happen to you. Well, let me tell you a story of a man named Fauci on a tragic and fateful day. He put millions in his pocket and with Pfizer and Moderna filled the whole world with mRNA. Well, did that jab ever work? Oh no, it never did work. And our fate is still unlearned. What a pity Pfizer lied. We tried to fly the speed of science. It's the jab that never did work. Now all day long, Tony lied on TV stations saying science is run by me. We can't afford even one grandma dying. Say goodbye to your autonomy. Well, did that jab ever work? Oh no, it never did work. And our fate is still unlearned. Good old Fauci Pfizer lied. We tried to fly the speed of science. It's the jab that never did work. They bought all the media, they locked Wikipedia, they fired you for thinking straight. Such a blatant conspiracy, they called you delirious, the cult of mRNA. Well, did that jab ever work? Oh no, it never did work. And our fate is still unlearned. Shame and scandal, Pfizer lied, they tried to find the speed of science. It's the jab that never did work. All the NPCs lined up at vaccine stations, proudly playing Big Pharma's game. And when you're through, they'll give you one more booster, and now you'll never get off of that train. Well, did that job ever work? Oh no, it never did work. And our fate is still unlearned. No excuses, Pfizer lied. We tried to fly the speed of science. It's the job that never did work. Tony Fauci will go down as pure abomination with the pussies who pushed it too. Don't forget who was complacent calling rape immunization. No more refunds, your taxes due. Well, did that jab ever work? Oh no, it never did work. And our fate is still unlearned. It's psychotic, Pfizer lied. We tried to find the speed of science. It's the jab that never did work. Oh, you denizens of Earth, don't you think it's a scandal how they gambled your lives away? Just keep licking boots and lying, vote for pedos like Joe Biden till you're dying for mRNA. Well, did that jab ever work? Oh no, it never did work. And our fate is still unlearned. We all warned Jeff Pfizer lied. We tried to find the speed of science. It's the jab that never did work. It's getting tough to ignore, there's more people dying, stop denying there's something wrong. And when at last this house of cards collapses, 
Take my hand and let's sing this song. Well, did that jab ever work? Oh no, it never did work. And our fate is still unlearned. Plain germ theory flies with line. We tried to fly the speed of science. Is the jab that never did work? Oh well, did that jab ever work? Oh no, it never did work. And our fate is still unlearned. Flies with line. We tried to fly the speed of science. It's the jab that never did. Jab that never did. It's the jab that never. That was Foundering Messenger RNA, the jab that never did work, and a great suggestion. You know, these songs really tell us the the feelings of the time. This was suggested by Brian Steinweg. Brian, thanks so much for your contribution there. You know, wonderful, you know, lighthearted but still serious. Um, folk song about what's going on in the last week. Many of you heard that our CDC, the advisory panel, uh, had two votes. One was to vote the uh, COVID-19 vaccination onto the pediatric schedule for underprivileged children where it would be paid for by the government. And then the second vote was to put it on the uh, schedule for all children going forward, uh, in these panel votes were 15 to zero. There were no dissenting opinions, and it was, you know these were largely vaccinologists, immunologists, pediatricians, uh, academic doctors on these panels. What that means is, in the United States, the majority of states have rules that say once the CDC advises a vaccine goes on the schedule that. Indeed, the school systems then make this vaccination, like the others, a requirement to attend school. And then parents have to deal with this in terms of uh, uh, agreeing to it and getting it done in time for school or for uh, to get an exemption. What's odd about this is that um, all the studies agree that the vaccines only last six months. The COVID-19 vaccines, uh, if they have any theoretical benefit, it's for about six months. Uh, and there's no language so far that this, unlike the other vaccines, would actually be uh, an initial series, uh, two shots, and then a booster at six months, which would be in the middle of the school year, and then keep going round and round. What's being discussed by many on the vaccine front is uh, annual boosters. Well, the question comes up, how could there be annual boosters when the indeed the vaccines theoretically only last six months? Uh, that hasn't been brought up or addressed, and I do think it. I do find it an inconsistency that uh, no one seemed to pick up upon. I had a chance to go on NTD News and give some commentary regarding this development. Let's have a listen. Analysis on the CDC's actions that could lead to COVID-19 vaccine requirements for school children in some states. We hear from a leading expert on COVID-19 treatment to learn more. Joining us now is Dr. Peter McCullough, author of The Courage to Face COVID-19, Preventing Hospitalization and Death While Battling the Biopharmaceutical Complex. Great to have you on the show today, Dr. McCullough. Thanks for having me. CDC advisors will vote today on whether to add COVID-19 vaccines to the child immunization schedule. What's your perspective on whether or not this vaccine should be added? You know, I see patients with COVID-19 in my practice over the course of the last three years, including 
uh, giving advice on younger children. The disease is characteristically mild, is easily treated, and so the vaccines are not medically necessary. Uh, they're not clinically indicated, and we don't have any assurances that these are going to be safe over the short or even longer term. I, as a cardiologist, I have great concerns over myocarditis. A paper by Mansugin and colleagues from Thailand, the first prospective cohort study, showed a rate of 2.3% of damage occurring to the hearts in children ages 13 to 18 who took the COVID-19 vaccine, and that's just with one shot. So I'm greatly concerned uh, that this decision is off the rails. Uh, these uh, vaccines are still experimental, and they shouldn't be brought into the vaccine schedule. Heart damage, that just sounds like a very serious issue. Now, what about the efficacy? Have these dosages been tested? The uh, original uh, vaccines, which are now uh, obsolete, coded against the Wuhan spike protein, uh, Moderna and Pfizer had pediatric dosing. There was great concern, actually, children uh, closer to age 12 would be getting too much. But those vaccines uh, vaccines are, are obsolete, and now the new bivalent booster vaccines have never been tested in humans at all, neither adults or children. So I, I can't imagine what's going to come out on the schedule with respect to the series of injections, the schedule of when they're given, and then which ones, because the bivalent vaccines have never been tested in any human beings. And just help me understand here, Dr. McCullough, what are bivalent vaccines? The bivalent vaccines are the new vaccines, which are half of the, the formula is still against the extinct Wuhan spike protein, and half of the formula is directed against uh, the common elements of the BA4 and BA5 uh, subvariants of Omicron. So these bivalent vaccine boosters, they failed in animal studies. They were approved anyway for adults. Now the real quandary is what does, uh, you know, what does happen with the pediatric vaccine schedule. All this adds up to these vaccines in no way should be added to a routine schedule. I think what's going to happen is parents are going to lose trust. And if they lose trust, they may back out of the entire vaccine schedule for children. Do you see any issues with the National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act of 1986 that you think need to be amended? That act uh, provided a, a liability shield for the manufacturers. It was during a period of time when uh, vaccines were being developed and promulgated. At this point in time, the vaccines are so sufficiently tested and in human use, uh, that act should be uh, dissolved at this point in time. The vaccine manufacturers should be held fully liable in cases where children are injured from vaccines. <coughs> Dr. Peter McCullough, cardiologist and epidemiologist, thank you so much for your time today. I know you're calling in from your vacation. Very diligent. Thank you. Well, that was great for him to have me on. Indeed, I was on vacation. I went to a great meeting headed up by Dr. Kerry Gelb. I want to give him great credit. It was in Cabo, Mexico, first time I was there, but terrific group, and I was able to give uh, a two-hour session on uh, vaccine safety and efficacy and the need uh, to pivot towards uh, treatment, that there still may be residual cases left and we need to treat them, which, as many of you know, has been my consistent stance all the way through the pandemic. Now, the other major story that we're following is the Omni-S variant, which was intentionally devised by a, a viral biological uh, 
safety group in Boston University at a biosafety lab level four. And this Omni-S uh, variant, which represents the, um, the Omicron spike protein uh, now as a chimeric onto the backbone of the original Wuhan uh, strain to allow the Wuhan strain to be replicate more rapidly, be more infectious, uh, but then uh, allow this chimeric to have all the deadliness of the original Wuhan strain where the Omicron is quite mild. Boston University put this forward in a preprint and almost like as a proud innovation, and then there was quite a national reaction. I went on uh, Eric Bowling, the Newsmax uh, se segment, along with uh, Dr. Kelly Victory and Dr. Pierre Corey, uh, and uh, this is the balance. Let's take a listen. COVID confusion, folks. There's now friction between the federal government and Boston University researchers after a brand new study, a COVID-19 study, was published stating BU created a new deadly COVID strain with an 80% kill rate. Today, BU pushed back on those publications, saying those reports are misleading and untrue. So which is it? What we know is researchers were working at BU with this hybrid virus where they took the spike protein of Omicron and attached it to the original strain. In mice, they found this new fused version killed 80% of mice infected. The doctors are on call. Our panel of doctors is back with us. We're very lucky to have Dr. Pierre Corey, Dr. Kelly Victory, and Dr. Peter McCullough. Docs, thank you so much. Dr. Corey, let me start with you here. We, you know, the reports were yesterday, and I think it was Daily Mail who's reported, if I'm not mistaken, who said there was a new, a new version, an accelerated, a gain-of-function version at BU that killed, that we had an 80% kill rate. BU says, hold on, hold on. You selectively, you picked the wrong lines in that study. What do you hear? What do you know? Yeah, I find that statement to be absolutely misleading. Uh, you know, it is almost sort of gain of function. It's, it doesn't meet the original definition, but they took Omicron, which they admitted was mild. They combined it, and now they have something that's 80% deadly. So they made an Omicron strain even deadlier, and then they defend themselves <clears throat> by saying it's not as deadly as the original strain. Why are we uh, why are we making viruses more dangerous? Why are we playing with more viruses in the lab? I, I mean, in this in this environment during this global pandemic, that they're continuing to do these things. They defend themselves by the, they think that it's going to help uh, find therapeutics. We already know of many therapeutics. You could just study repurposed drugs. Uh, this is really dangerous, and it's incredible that it's still ongoing. Yeah, and and, and Dr. McCall, I think they I, I read that BU, the researchers said that no, they were trying to find ways to. I guess re reduce the transmissibility and the and the deadliness, mortality of of the original COVID uh, strain, rather than and they added the the milder Omicron. What are your thoughts on it? I read the manuscript carefully. First author Chen, senior author um, Saeed, and and I can tell you, it was clear they were trying to make the virus more deadly. They were in a sense trying to take the best of Omicron in terms of its uh, rapidity of replication and its infectivity and then the lethality of the original Wuhan strain and have them combined. You know, it was uh, uh, tested in human uh, immortal cell lines and, and found to be uh, tremendously infective. They then used humanized uh, mice and showed it could damage the respiratory epithelium, cause weight loss, make them very sick and then kill them. Uh, there was no mention of therapeutics in the paper. There was no testing of 
of any type of countermeasure like a monoclonal antibody or vaccine. In my view, this was an intentional U.S. government-funded program to make SARS-CoV-2 more deadly. <laughs> Dr. Victory, you, know, you have to ask, where's the logic in this? Where is the logic? I mean, we know there have been CDC and others have proven there have been thousands, thousands of lab leaks for various, various other things other than COVID. But we believe this is the COVID came from the Wuhan lab in China as a lab leak. Why would BU be playing around with something that potentially could be so deadly? Well, Eric, I think we have ample reason to be gravely concerned. There isn't much that I agree with from a policy perspective that came out of the Obama administration, but I absolutely did support the moratorium that was placed in 2014 on gain-of-function research. And I believe that every thoughtful physician and scientist did as well, because it's very dangerous stuff. You are talking about fundamentally weaponizing a pathogen taking it, making it more deadly, more transmissible, more infective, more lethal, whatever. And when you cannot control into whose hands that pathogen may fall, we are, we are living this. We have lived globally three years of a holy hell as a result of gain-of-function research out of that Wuhan lab. So I think it's intellectually dishonest at best for BU to try to say that this was somehow not gain-of-function research because it clearly was. They were trying to enhance the transmissibility, the infectivity, and the lethality of a particular pathogen. And lab leaks, as you rightly point out, are not an anomaly. They happen. Uh, labs are only secure as the, you know, as the least competent individual who works there. Accidents happen. I can't say whether uh, COVID-19 escaped from the lab in Wuhan out of malfeasance or abject uh, incompetence, but it got out and it can happen. And that's why this type of research is extremely, extremely dangerous. Yeah. I don't know why we're allowing this. You're 100% right, Dr. Victor. Very quickly, guys, let's do these sound bites back to back. Let's first do these. Uh, Dr. Fauci uh, this past Sunday saying that he had nothing to do with co closing schools and then we'll butt it right up against. Well, that's not so true. Take a listen. Was it a mistake in so many states and so many localities uh, to see schools closed as long as they were? I think in some case, I don't want to use the word mistake, John, because if I do, it gets taken out of the context. They always come back and say Fauci was responsible for closing schools. I had nothing yeah. to do. I mean, you're, I you're, mean let's get down to the fact. There are some areas where the level may be low, but not absent and maybe a little troublesome. You might want to modify the schedule, a hybrid, part online, part in person, morning, afternoon, um, alternating days, whatever it is at the local authorities. And that there may be some areas that the level of virus is so high that it would not be prudent to bring the children back to school. Uh-oh, uh-oh, uh-oh. Let's go round robin very quickly. Let's take 30 seconds each. We'll start with you, Dr. Kelly Victory. Well, I can tell you of all of the errors that were made during this pandemic, Eric, closing schools uh, was one of the most egregious. We knew from the beginning that children were very poor vectors of COVID. They are at such a de minimis risk of severe illness from COVID as to be indistinguishable from zero. We knew that they were not passing it to anyone at home, and we have done untold damage. And Anthony Fauci was at the helm of this. He absolutely was directing it, and he doesn't get to wash his hands of it at this point. You got a half a minute for you, Dr. McCullough. 
But America was clearly taking his cues from Dr. Anthony Fauci. He's responsible. The new documentary premieres today, actually, The Real Anthony Fauci. Everybody should check it out. All right, really good. And bring it home, Dr. Corey. Yeah, just another example of, of, of Dr. Fauci trying to, you know, evade blame. He clearly uh, was, you know, contributed to these to lockdowns and mandates and school closures. And and we knew going into the pandemic, epidemiologists knew that is not how you approach a viral pandemic. And I mean, again, these policy failures. Now he's trying to distance himself from them, and uh, he he cannot he cannot erase his role in this. Yeah. He can try, but he can't yeah. do it. Yeah, you know what? These are the best doctors on the planet. We're lucky to have you on. We'll get you back again as these stories develop. And by the way, Fauci, flip-flop Fauci, as we call him, he's denied uh, participating in gain of function, even though they financed it. He denied it was a lab leak, even though we now know it was. And he's consistently flip-flopped on efficacy of masks and, and various other things, including lockdowns in schools, which he now denies he ever had a part of, yet he recommended. Dr. Pierre Corey, Dr. Peter McCullough, Dr. Kelly Victory, thank you. For joining us, folks, those doctors are on call for us. Appreciate their time. That was Eric Bowling, and the show is called The Balance. But that's national TV. Those two spots that I uh, just played for you are national TV in the United States for those uh, listeners to the McCullough Report outside the United States. So in many ways, we're fortunate that we can have our voices heard uh, around the country and give a, a, an opinion, a counter opinion. That's what doctors do. We render opinions, and it's certainly an honor to be able to do that for the country. We have a great show for you this week. Our guest on the backside is Dr. Renata Moon, and she's an academic pediatric physician. She's going to give us a view of what it's like inside academia during this time of COVID-19 vaccine mandates and groupthink. So let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. I can tell you, one of the greatest pathophysiologic drivers for tiredness and fatigue during the day is poor quality sleep at night. People always focus on how long they slept, but they never think about the quality and to improve the quality, there's a terrific product. That's the Healthy Cell REM Sleep Supplement. And what I tell friends and family and patients is take it every night consistently. Uh, it comes in a continue, a convenient bioabsorbable gel pack. Uh, take it right before you go to bed. Take the gel pack, brush your teeth, go to bed. Its effects are nearly instantaneous. And patients get a well-rested sleep continuously, day after day, week after week, month after month, and then that daytime tiredness and fatigue melts away when there's a greater restful sleep the night before. So give it a try. Go to uh, HealthyCell.com and in the promotional code, type in out loud for 20% off your order. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. These days, every time you turn on the news, it seems like there's a new threat to your health. Maintaining a strong immune system has never been more critical. Advanced nutrition company, Healthy Cell, created Immune Super Boost to help you strengthen your immunity. Unlike other supplements that don't work, Immune Super Boost is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra absorption of science-backed nutrients proven to support immunity, like vitamin C, D3, zinc, elderberry, and echinacea. These physician formulated gels come in a small gel pack. Tear off the top and shoot it down 
or mix it in water. Boost your immunity. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. We know you love the versatility and portability of the Genesis Fogger, but sometimes you just want to set it and forget it. Well, we heard you. Introducing the UX4 HOCL Atomizer. This stationary unit quietly protects you and is perfect for smaller spaces. With over a quarter million units sold in Japan, it's now available in the United States. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud to see the UX4 in action and receive a 15% discount on either Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you're ready for anything. Hello, I'm Ben Marble, MD, and I founded MyFreeDoctor.com as a donation-supported, faith-based nonprofit with a mission to save lives by delivering free doctor visits to patients in all 50 states of America. MyFreeDoctor.com treats a broad range of health concerns like COVID-19, long COVID, sinus infections, urinary tract infections, rashes, medication refills, and more. So please visit MyFreeDoctor.com where we're healing America one person at a time. Let's get real, let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. I'm taking my next risky interview. I'm outside looking at the beautiful landscape of Sedona, Arizona, and I have for the first time on the other side of the microphone, Dr. Renata Moon. She goes by Rennie Moon, and let me tell you what, she's terrific. She went to undergraduate at Washington University in St. Louis, and then went to medical school at Washington University School of Medicine. Let me tell you, WashU is one of the hardest medical schools to get into. It's way up there. They're the top of the top. She went on and did her residency in pediatrics, became a pediatric inpatient specialist, and was a clinical associate professor of medicine, uh, very highly regarded uh, in her field, took care of uh, you know thousands of patients over the course of her career, and then she ran into a buzzsaw, and that was the COVID-19 pandemic. I brought her to the microphone because I want to hear from a, pedi- a pediatrician, but it's the first academic pediatrician that I've talked to. Dr. Moon, welcome to the McCullough Report. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, just tell us the story. What happened? What, what went on with COVID-19 that changed your life as an academic pediatric specialist? You know, I think when this whole infection and the pandemic rolled out, it was, it honestly was terrifying to most of us in medicine the first few weeks. I, you know, as a pediatrician, I am pretty much covered in whatever the kids bring into the office. And I thought, you know, this is it. We're all just going to die. And it's terrible. And, you know, so the first few weeks we were quite concerned. And I kept crunching numbers, though. I kept looking to see, you know, what is the infection fatality rate of this thing? And and it became really obvious to me pretty early on that what really mattered was how many people were infected with this that really didn't even know they had it. They were very mild cases. So what mattered was the denominator and the numbers as they were calculating them. And while, yes, there have been people affected with it, you know, quite severely, what, what concerned me was our, our overreaction to what was happening and the way we were treating our children in the process with 
with masking them and distancing them and isolating them. So the virus, in your mind, didn't affect people equally. And that was one of the first important observations. It, it became pretty clear that the kids were not affected by this virus in terms of the virus itself. What they were affected by was our response to the virus. So the masking of them, the social distancing, the, and the isolating of our kids. And, and I began to see just a huge increase in mental health issues related to all the social distancing measures that we were, we were putting in place. Now, when they decided to close down the schools uh, in the area where you were living, did some schools stay open and some schools shut down? Yeah, we had, uh, we had a lot of that, yes. We had some of the private schools that stayed open, and we had, uh, I think, all of the public schools shut down. And, and I began to see a difference in the mental health of the kids that uh, I could almost tell when they walked in the office which school they, they were coming from, which type of school. Did you see any from. difference in the rates of families getting COVID or anything in those where the kids went to school versus the kids who were shut out of school? No, I didn't. I saw, you know, I really literally saw hundreds and hundreds of kids with COVID in those first number of months of the pandemic. And um, they mostly had the sniffles. I think I had one patient that had to go to the emergency room for a few hours and then was discharged. Um, but really, all the patients I saw in the clinic setting were, they were fine. We, we barely knew they had it. Um, I had the same experience. I made a few house calls, taking care of the adults. I was asked to examine the children. It looked like a common cold. I can only recall one case where I got a panic call and people wanted advice. Believe it or not, it was in Canada. Mm-hmm. And it was a daughter of, of a young physician. He knew of me. And he said, you know, I, my child's got covid and I've gone to the ER like three times, and they've given an albuterol nebulizer. And I said, "Well, it's not really asthma. There can be some bronchospasm." I said, "But how about a how about a pedesonide uh, nebulization?" Uh-huh. He goes, "Well, I'm not sure they they would do that." And and I said, "Well, why don't you ask, or why don't you see if you can't do it?" And and uh, and I end up talking to the grandparents, and it was all this interaction. And a day or two later, he said, "You know what?" That's all it took. All it took uh-huh. was a little steroid nebulizer, and this child got better. And I think that's been the extent of it. I've studied the papers where children are hospitalized with COVID, and it did happen. And it's my read, in one of the papers that was in JAMA, I distinctly remember in the table of baseline characteristics, about a third of the children were previously hospitalized in the last year for other non-COVID problems, meaning uh-huh. there is a population of kids who have problems and they are intermittently hospitalized. You must have seen these kids in your career. That was what you did, right? Yeah, I worked in a hospital setting for a long time, and but I wasn't in the hospital setting when COVID hit. So. I know, but prior to COVID, mm-hmm. what types of kids yeah. got hospitalized for, for, for yeah. reasons? Well, we had the frequent flyers. So we had, we called them the frequent flyers, the, the kids that had underlying chronic issues and were in repetitively for for whatever problems, you know, they were facing. So surgeries for their um, feeding tubes, um, respiratory issues, that type of thing. Uh, and then, of course, the kids that you have admitted for just basic dehydration from, from all viruses. You know, any virus can lead to a hospital stay. And um, But a population of children that a quarter of them had been hospitalized in the prior year tells me as an epidemiologist, I think of 
conditions, cerebral palsy, seizures, cystic fibrosis, right, that's kids with um, you know congenital diaphragmatic hernias, mm-hmm. uh, there was a proportion who have tracheostomies yeah. at baseline. Sure. Yeah. So in the children who are in forms of uh, group homes or even there are chronic uh, facilities where, where there are mechanical ventilators and mm-hmm. things of this nature. So they exist. Uh, this population of children exist. And in fact, if they got COVID, some were hospitalized. But this idea that we should shut down the schools, and I think the mo- one of the most interesting thing is a lot of the parochial schools didn't shut down. Mm-hmm. Parents were paying tuition. Same thing in Dallas. Uh, the Dallas Independent School District shut down. The private schools, St. Mark's and all the rest stayed open. I was talking to parents. Any difference? No. In fact, the kids who just stayed in school had a much more normal life. The parents had a much more normal life because the kids staying out of school, don't forget, affects the parents. Yeah. And now the parents have trouble getting to work and, and managing their responsibilities. And it became this cascading effect. What I've heard is that the children who were taken out of school for a year and a year and a half, that harm was done. That there was medical harm, but also sociological and educational harm. Is that your view? Yeah, there was a lot of, I would phrase it as psychological harm. We really, you know, the mental health of our nation's children has been very poor, honestly, since the cell phones rolled out and smartphones and social media. So it was already, it was already there. We already had a mental health issue with kids. But this pandemic just crashed these teenagers and, and preteens. It just crashed them off a cliff. I was seeing, I had days in the clinic where I was seeing, you know, after the pandemic measures were put in place, six or seven children a day that were psychologically just so harmed, you know, suicidal, anxious, depressed, visibly shaking in front of me, just unable to understand that, uh, you know, that they were okay from this, this virus that they were so fearful of. I had some kids coming in to my office who had literally not left their house in over a year as we got further into this pandemic. And I said to them, I said, you haven't even been outside? I met a number of them that had never even left their house to go outside. They were indoors this whole time. And as they came into my office, were just shaking in front of me, wearing their masks, just, just trembling and so fearful of this virus that we know and knew for a long time they had a 99.999% you know, percent chance of surviving this thing just fine. Really, essentially 100% because they were healthy people and they didn't know that. They, they didn't have the ability to understand that. This, the fear was just so, was so deep. So we really hurt this nation's children in a, in a really profound way and it, it was all psychological fear. You know, as of August 2022, the CDC now says that in healthcare facilities, that only if we're dealing directly dealing with COVID do we need to wear a mask. So yeah. if the CDC says that now, that was true from the very beginning. The only yeah. people who need to wear a mask, and the only purpose in wearing a mask would be to try to reduce a big sneeze or a droplet spread of someone coughing uh, who had COVID-19, or even for that matter, tuberculosis or some other uh, influenza or some other illness. But outside of that in healthcare, we actually never needed to wear a mask outside of our usual things. We wear a mask in the operating room, for instance, um, largely to contain a big sneeze and droplet spread. It's known that 25% of doctors actually have staphylococcal uh, carriage in the nasopharynx. You can imagine a surgeon or a resident 
loading up a big sneeze and sneezing into a mediastinal wound. I mean, that would be yeah. a disaster. So we wear masks in the operating room. I want the listeners to know I'm a cardiologist. We go to the cath lab. We wear a mask. Uh, you know, we deal with pacemakers and other uh, devices. We wear masks. If we had a COVID patient right in front of us, we'd wear a mask. And you know what? If we have a COVID patient in our hospital and we take them out of the room to the CT scanner for a CT, they wear a mask. Now, they don't wear a hazmat suit. No. Uh, and uh, we see the Chinese wearing hazmat suits. You know, recently I had on the program Dr. Eugenia Barentios from El Salvador, and she has treated thousands of patients mm -hmm. in El Salvador. She never wore a mask. Uh -huh. She never wore a mask. And I asked her, what do you think about the Chinese wearing hazmat suits or even in US ERs wearing hazmat suits? She laughed. She said, hazmat suits? Uh -huh. It doesn't. There, there's actually a film reel. Some of you re recall this. The Chinese were spraying each other's shoes like the virus was coming out of the shoes. There's a newsreel where in Europe they're spraying the sidewalks as if the virus was going to emanate out of the, yeah. the sidewalks. So fast forward now. You're a pediatrician. You see the rollout of the vaccines. Uh, from the very beginning, did you question the vaccines? Uh, let's take you back to your thinking in December of 2020, January of 2021. How about for senior citizens? How about for nursing homes? I mean, did you have any viewpoint at that time that a vaccination would be a good idea? You know, I, I honestly didn't know, so I looked, I looked into it. Um, I have been a proponent, an advocate for childhood vaccines my entire career. And so, you know, now they've relabeled that whole anti-vax as being someone who is against the mandate, which is a whole nother topic and is just laughable. But I'm not someone who ever would have been considered or is anti-vax. Um, again, I've been an advocate my whole career. But when this, when this new platform rolled out, of course I had questions. I was a biochemistry major in college. And I wanted to know, you know, what is the biodistribution of this product? Where does it go after you inject this? into someone's arm. Um, what, where does it go in the lipid membrane of the cells? Uh, where, where does it go in the body? Uh, could it cause rheumatologic issues? Could it cause immune issues? You know, I even asked, you know, some of my, uh, my uh, students at the school where I teach, uh, this conversation came up and they, they asked me what I thought. And I told them, I said, you know, I've, I've been burned by new technology before. Look back at our medical history, really the history of all medicine, and you'll see that over, uh, over many decades, you know, things have happened that have been big oopses, you know, big problems. And so you never are the first to jump on the bandwagon with something new, but you're never also the last. And, and so everything requires some critical thinking. And, and I, I definitely was concerned about it as it rolled out. I, I didn't find a huge amount of literature on it um, and certainly was busy in clinic and, and uh, you know, did my best to look into it some. But, uh, but I had worries, like we all should. We should all, you should have a physician who critically thinks. That's, that's how we were taught to be, and that's how, uh, that's how science is best served, by having people who sit and think, well, what if, and what about that, and how is this gonna work out? You know, those, those critical thinking skills are necessary. Now, these are under emergency use authorization, probably the first time in our careers We've had exposure to emergency use authorized products. I know for me, it was, we had uh, an Ebola outbreak in Dallas a few years before COVID, but I wasn't involved with that. That was over at Presbyterian Hospital. CDC came in, uh, we were told they did a good job. We were just kind of watching from the sidelines. So the vaccines roll out, they're emergency use authorized. I took a look at the consent form. It says 
that these are investigational. Yeah. It says every every consent form in the United States says investigational or it says research. And I can tell you as a clinical investigator, where I you know, I've had dozens and dozens of research programs under my name and, and been responsible for them. If I ever told a patient, you should be in my research program, you should sign up and take my research medication, I would be quickly called by the Institutional Review Board, uh, the Research Administration, I'd be told I'm over the line, that doctors can never encourage or pressure or ever try to force or, uh, or, or uh, have any retaliation for someone participating or not participating in research. That's a golden, golden principle. So when this started to roll out and you're seeing patients, did you ever encourage them to take the vaccine? So I, I actually uh, had, had a lot of angst over this mandate. The mandate was just so obviously wrong. And the, about the time that this rolled out for the, the kids, in terms of being even available for the kids, is around the time the mandate rolled out. If I, I'd have to look at exact dates. But, um, but yeah, I was, the mandate is wrong. I, I grew up with this foundation of, of ethics and ethical principles. And the very foundation of medicine is based on informed consent, right? So in order to give someone informed consent, it's actually really quite simple. You have to be informed which how can you inform someone about the risks and benefits of a product that has yet to be experimented or is, has yet to be investigated and understood? And then how can you possibly give consent or have someone give consent uh, to a product when they are coerced or bullied or threatened into it, right? So, so for me, the, the vaccine honestly tied in a great deal to the whole informed consent issue and the whole issue of the mandate. And I drew a line in the sand. I just said, I said, no, I'm not going to ever force someone to take something where they have not given true informed consent. And so, no, I did not. Um, I've never ordered okay. this product. So that's a good uh, that's a good analysis. So for a pediatrician, by the time these came out and available to children, the adult mandates were already on. So, so you yeah. were already in a zone where this doesn't sound good. Now, as an adult physician, you know, these rolled out December 10th of 2020 for me, and my patients were coming mm -hmm. in. Yeah. And uh, some of my patients, uh, those with heart failure, emphysema, other problems, they were actually lining up for hours at a vaccine center. And patients would ask me, and I said, you know, I'm, I'm neutral. These are brand new. Uh, they came out of the clinical trials. Uh, what struck me out of the clinical trials, and I was asked this in the U.S. Senate, in November 2020, they said, what do you think about the vaccines? And, and, and as a majority witness, I was just silent because we had heard that they, they were 90% vaccine efficacy, but the rates of COVID were less than 1%. I said, how could they do a study? We're, we're buried in COVID patients. How did they get such a population? We're one, less than 1% in COVID. But having said that, I was neutral. Patients in my practice, some took the vaccine, some didn't. You know, it wasn't really administered in our hospital for quite some time, people went to community vaccine centers. Uh, and I think the month that I had looked at the data and said things are way over the line for me was March 2021. And I was probably mm -hmm. late. Yeah. I was probably late. How about for you? When you were following the data, when did you start to get on safety? When did you start to have an alarm bell go off? It's, it's complicated, but I would say right around February of 2021. Okay. 
And it had to do with the, we had, look, I've been practicing like you for a number of, of years and you, you get a real rhythm for what is normal and what isn't out there. And I was seeing reports of adverse events that were clearly related to this rollout. And I don't mean in my own patients, I just mean in society at large, because again, my patients weren't receiving this yet. It wasn't approved for kids. But in society at large, I was I was just hearing too many things already and thinking, wow, what is what is happening here? And and I think it's important to back up a little bit and just understand that all of us physicians have really trusted, trusted fully our, you know, I call them the, the, the alphabet agencies at this point, but the, the regulatory agencies, the three letter regulatory agencies that have you know given us advice and recommendations throughout our entire careers and we have trusted them and i have to say somewhere in there i began to lose trust in what was being told to me i was seeing um, clear disinformation coming to me in my medical journals and in the uh, emails and the newsletters that we get as physicians that are, are outside the the public you know information that's sent out and I really began to question, what is going on here? Like, we are hearing about adverse events with these injections, and yet we're being told by these regulatory agencies that everything is fine. And it, it clearly isn't fine. And the, the analogy I have is, you know, you're sitting in a room, and the smoke alarms start to go off. And everyone says, oh, it's fine. It's just, it's a false alarm. And then you're still sitting in the room, and all of a sudden, the you smell smoke. And you're still being told by your regulatory agencies, you know, everything's fine. It's really not a big deal. And you're starting to get a little nervous. And, and pretty soon you start to actually see flames. And now the firefighters are running in the building and you're still being told that everything is fine. And and that's kind of, that would be a summary for me of 2021 and how that looked. Something was clearly wrong and we were being told to, to be quiet and, and, you know, not to say anything. So, so somewhere in there, like you were saying, some of those months. Did any one of your colleagues, let's say physicians, people in academic standing like you, did any of them give you a call or did you have a conversation in the hallway or anywhere where, where they said, you know what, I, I don't like what I'm seeing? Certainly with some of them, but I was struck by how many, you know, I called a number of them and I said, listen, this, is, this doesn't seem right. I had physician colleagues who were being interviewed on the on the radio and on TV, people I've known for so long, and who who were on TV saying, "Oh, this this product is completely safe. This is perfectly fine." And I called some of them, you know, quietly on the phone afterwards, and I said, "You know, there are a number of us that have concerns," and I was met with just a wall, just a wall of, "Well, I've already given it to my family, or I've already recommended it for my family." And, and I realize that psychologically that is really difficult. We all have family who have taken this product. I think the majority of us do. It's very, very hard to say, you know, something is not right and, and to backpedal. But I was met with a wall from a lot of people that I really thought were critical thinkers and I thought could see this, just like, you know, a number of us did see it. Um, it's a very, it's been a very difficult time in medicine to see colleagues uh, that you used to really trust and. Uh, to see them just put up a wall and not want to go past that, that point. But don't you think a lot of this has to do with the fact that no one is neutral on the vaccines because it's a personal thing to them or their family? So you and I could have a discussion about cystic fibrosis because we don't have it, our kids don't have it, and we can have this 
academic, dispassionate discussion on the data. With the COVID-19 vaccines, what I've noticed is within two seconds, someone immediately personalizes it and said, well, I either took the vaccine or they didn't. You know, it's funny how everybody reduces it to that uh, decision. And we found that among uh, physicians. And what I recall in Dallas, I went to UT Southwestern in Dallas, which is a similar place to Wash U. And I saw the news go go interview a young doctor at UT Southwestern, assistant professor of medicine in the ER. And it was some strapping, young, handsome guy saying, I can't wait to get my vaccine and protect others. And that, you know, he was going to do it. And and what was going on in a lot of this messaging is what people call virtue signaling. Yeah. That they were going to do it to protect others. They weren't really doing it for themselves. They knew they weren't at risk or they felt healthy, but they were going to do it for others. Do you see that too? Yeah, it's been such an emotional time for this whole nation, right? And for the whole world. It's been very difficult. And and clearly, I think... um, you know, I think that, uh, yeah, people really personalized it and had a really hard time stepping outside of, of uh, that to look at what was happening. And I, I think, you know, we as physicians have always been taught that we don't um, treat our own family members as much as we possibly can avoid doing it because you get so emotionally vested in that decision. So you're not able to make sound scientific and, and medical decisions. And I think this was a real example of why that is true. Like, you know, it's really hard to make um, to make recommendations for family and friends and then to step away from that and realize that something has changed with the data or that the data that you now have gives you a different perspective on it and, and to step back and change your opinion. It's, it's a lot harder psychologically to do that. I know, but that's happened before. I remember in, you know, a few products in medicine, that we use that it turned out it wasn't a good idea and that yeah. we have to admit you know it didn't work out so well um, we had a situation in um, heart surgery where the hemo the um, perfusion device actually got contaminated with the bacteria oh, wow. and we had to tell all the patients regarding this we've had recalls on pacemaker leads we've had some drugs that were withdrawn from the market and and we look back on it and say it wasn't uh, a, a good idea, what we, you know, we, we use it. So I tell people, you know, no drug is forever. We're going to wait for better technology to come along. For this one, uh, as an adult, I had a lot of patients asking me about it. I had a lot of patients who want to take it. I didn't advise them to take it or not take it. And I, I tend to, I tended to temporize. I don't know if this is mm-hmm. right or not, but I said, let's wait and see. Let's wait and see. And then people would push me more. And I said, well, gosh, you know, if there is, I was worried more about allergic reactions early mm-hmm. on. I really yeah. was. And I said, well, you know, one advantage of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is a one-time shot. So you have a one-time chance with the, um, with the allergic reaction as opposed to this, um, the messenger RNA vaccines. And it was in the briefing booklet that from shot one of Pfizer Moderna shot two, there was an 80-fold increase in these acute um, symptoms, pain, uh, fever, what's called the reactogenicity. So I always thought the two-shot was maybe a higher risk just because it's two administrations. So if anything, I, I lent towards the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Now, it turns out in the randomized trials, if one aggregates the adenoviral vaccines in randomized trials, there actually are slightly fewer deaths in Johnson & Johnson than there are placebo in the randomized trials. And then with the Pfizer um, program, there's slightly more deaths with Pfizer. 
But in the end, looking across all the side effects and deaths, it's my interpretation that the vaccines are basically equally dangerous across the board. They really are. Uh, even the Novavax vaccine, which is recently available in the United States, in their briefing booklet, they report cases of myocarditis and blood clots. So they're actually being honest that it happens. Uh, neither one of them, I don't think honestly, myocarditis or blood clots and certainly death, none of that's worth it for this coronavirus, which we can we can treat. So let's move on. Well, I actually want to add one thing, if you don't mind, which is that, you know, as a pediatrician, I kept saying to myself and out loud to whoever would listen, where's the emergency for kids? Like, where is the emergency for kids? We, there just wasn't an emergency for kids. And so we have to be 100% sure that the product we're injecting into them is safe. And there's a whole other layer of censorship and silencing and fear mongering and and threatening physicians came upon us, right? Right around that time too, where increasingly we were being um, discouraged from speaking out or saying anything. And that's never happened to me in medicine before. And, and you know, my analogy to that would be, if you were getting on an airplane, I like to have analogies because I feel like it helps you kind of make it seem more realistic. And, and you know, my analogy is if you're getting on an airplane and the pilot of the airplane is standing there and says, you know, I'm a little nervous about flying this plane right now because I think something's wrong with the landing gear and I'm not totally sure about the left engine. You know, the answer to that is not to silence that pilot. The answer is to go figure out what's going on. And we were put in that kind of a position in, in the medical world where the, the first line, so to speak, physicians out there caring directly for patients were being told to be, to be quiet and are still being told to be quiet even as a new product has launched and even as there are, are safety concerns. You know, there is a process in surgery that you made me uh, think of, a quality assurance process. It's called stop the line. So in a surgery, as the nurses are getting ready, the surgeons, the techs, the residents, fellows, if anybody sees anything wrong in the setup of the surgery, they have the right and they have equal standing in the operating room to hold the line and say, listen, something's not right. We're, we've got the wrong side of the body. That's right. We don't have the right CT scan up. Uh, we don't have the right um, preparation for anesthesia. So, so for individual patient care, stop the line or hold the line is encouraged. But here we are rolling out a mass vaccination yes. program. The other thing before we move on uh, to the next segment is as an adult doctor, and maybe I'm influenced by this because um, I was dealing with elderly parents on both sides of um, my family and my wife's family, and seeing all the patients sick with COVID, I was focused on the seniors. I was focused on sick people in nursing homes. There were clear-cut outbreaks. Uh, there was initial reports, 40% of the people dying with COVID were seniors. Nursing home, it was about seniors, 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 over and over again. And then what happened through the course of 2021, and clearly in 2022, was a focus taken off the seniors. We never see them in newsreels. We never see them in any discussion of the vaccines. And there has now been for over a year, it seems to be a hyper-focused, incessant obsession on vaccinating the children, yes. way more than the seniors. Yes, yes. And you know, we had fairly early on, although it, it took a while, I guess, still, but we did have the director of CDC that came out and said, this doesn't stop the transmission. We, we knew that. 
And so, again, where was the emergency for kids, and where is the urgency to inject them with a product that had questions, high questions, huge questions about safety? It just wasn't there. And I, I think, um, you know, I see my colleagues waking up to this, but it's it's been slower than I would have liked to see. Up and down the academic ranks, let's just take everything from the undergraduate universities, all the PhDs, all the graduate students, the people in these giant complexes. Now, Washington University of St. Louis is a giant complex. I know you're not there now, but you spent a lot of time there. University of Texas Southwestern, also a giant mega uh, complex. I went to medical school there. What can people in these complexes do to start to change the tide. I have a sense now that you and I, we're on the outside. We're not on the inside moving these institutions, not anymore. What yeah. can people do inside these institutions? I do, I've talked to so many colleagues around the nation and have run into um, many that see what is happening and they're worried about our loss of freedom. There, there really are, there are many who are out there and have seen this. You know, these are smart people, many of them see it. But they've also chosen at this point to lay low and to not, you know, not to be attacked by the by the regulatory agencies and by the institutions. And and this is not the time to do that. My message for my colleagues is it's now we you need to speak out. We all need to speak out and we all need to help people see what's happening because that is the only way we break the chains of of what is going to be increasing tyrannical control over the practice of medicine, but over our lives um, and our ability to live our lives in any sort of a free and meaningful way. Um, and what I'm trying to say by that is, is you, you out there, the listener, is determining the future of your children and your grandchildren. How will they live? Will they live as free people? Will they, leave as, will they live as slaves to a system that tells them what to do, how to do it, how to think? what to think that's that's the future that we all control and the only way we break out of this is by speaking up and speaking out and becoming active at a grassroots level wow that was powerful i want to thank you so much dr rennie moon for joining us on the mccullough report thank you for having me let's get real let's get loud on america out loud talk radio this is the mccullough report <laughs>